to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have Davy Lauritsen. Davy moved to Tain in 1994 and worked initially in the hotel industry and then decided that that was all a little bit too indoors, so ended up joining the Highlands and Islands Fire and Rescue Service in 98 and drifted from there towards the Scottish Ambulance Service, which uh, he's been in for the last 10 years. He's been involved with basics for a, a fair few of those years and now finds himself alternating between working at scenes as part of the fire response and through the ambulance service and through basics. Davey, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on to join us. Thank you for asking me. So I guess wearing both of your hats, the obvious thing to pick your brains about is going to be the kind of multi-agency road traffic collision type jobs that, that we often find ourselves working alongside the fire service at. Yeah, um, being so remote and rural, it doesn't really matter which um, hat I'm wearing. One of us will always be there first, whether it be the ambulance, the fire service or, or basics itself. So it's nice to have a few skills up my sleeve. What are your kind of priorities if you're, if you're wearing your fire service hat? What's the kind of the, the initial actions that you need to, to try and manage? So uh, scene safety is obviously the most important, followed by the, the casualty. Fire service are always very good at if the patient's conscious, breathing, inline stabilization with suspected neck, back pain, etc., etc. And um, if that is in place when I turn up as a paramedic, and I can, I leave them there, which allows both of us on the ambulance free to assess um, both that casualty and others. The initial phase of a rescue is critical because that really sets the conditions for everything. I've heard the term the golden hour being used. Can you unpick that for us? Certainly. So the golden hour, I think a lot of us have heard that. It's the most important time in, in which to get a casualty extricated and certainly en route to hospital. When you're as rural as we are and, and certainly down in the borders, to achieve in hospital within the golden hour is, is, is far from it. So the golden hour is when the medical team works alongside the fire service and others to provide a safe extrication in a controlled manner. And this is really known as simultaneous activity. Uh, simultaneous activity involves medical rescue from the ambulance service um, basics teams, stabilizing and improving the casualties condition at the scene. And the physical rescue involves the actual steps taken to disentangle the wreckage from the casualty, resulting in the casualty being extricated from the vehicle. So this simultaneous medical and physical rescue leads to a reduced extrication time of the patient. Certainly something that often at jobs, we get our heads into the, into the medical rescue aspects and miss the fact that aside from a annoying noises and occasional breaking of glass there's there's a lot happening around us that that kind of goes under the radar absolutely i mean you know batteries have to be isolated fuel leaks have to be dealt with traffic on the road that's usually down to the, the responsibility of the police so that's another emergency service involved in the golden hour and the rescue of, of, of the casualty alongside that you mentioned there noises and crashes and everything else the fire service are fantastic at creating 
space both inside and outside of the vehicle in order to help us actually get in about the casualty. They can remove pedals, they can cut backs of chairs away, seat belts, all that sort of thing within the compartment. But roof removal, door removal, a stabilization initially of the vehicle in order to provide a, a stable platform is also vitally important. I've certainly ended up using fire services even once we're out of the vehicle to kind of assist with that creation of space, you know, holding up shields to, to protect when we're doing invasive procedures to protect the, the casualty from you know, bystanders and YouTube videos and all that sort of thing. So even after they're out of the vehicle, your guys' involvement doesn't doesn't really stop. No, and I mean, medical, medical extrication by the fire service is becoming more and more popular, not just within the settings of RTCs, but we very often use them for awkward extrication from, from houses as well. We have the spinal boards, we have the orthopedic stretchers, but there's only ever sort of two of us on a vehicle. And if you've got a larger patient or a very awkward staircase, you know, they're handy at that type of scene as well. And of course, protection from the elements for the casualty or the entrapped patient as well. So if you're the officer in charge arriving at an RTC, what, what are the things that you want to try and pin down early on? So, I mean, the, the first thing is the, the safety of all the people, both my crew and ambulance staff, patients and everything else. We do the normal dynamic risk assessments. Are there fuel leaks? You know, are there airbags deployed? Are they not deployed? Because they can be very dangerous to people working around the car. And within the car, we might need to deal with any small fires um, within the vehicle or in fields around that, that might have started. Then we assist with the, with the dealing of casualties. If we're first on scene, we like to get someone behind the main casualty, holding the neck in an inline position. Speaking to them is, is vitally important. Reassurance of the casualty to keep them calm, help them understand what's going on. You know yourself, if you're, you're sitting nice and still and all of a sudden there's a loud crack over your left shoulder, you're inclined to turn to see what that noise was. Obviously, we don't want it. And uh, the fire service is very good at explaining where the next noise is going to come from and, and prevent um, the casualty with, with unnecessary movements. We've also got other concerns of what the type of vehicle is. Is this a car? Is it on all fours? Is this a van? that might be carrying various substances, is it an HGV? So there's really a, a lot going on when you first arrive. Once the sort of initial scene has, has been worked out, I guess as a, as a basics responder, my, my first real contact with the fire service team leader is, is generally looking at a bit of an extraction plan. Sure. Can you talk us through what, what the sort of options are? So there's really three options into the rescue into organizing a timely release we'll start with the full plan which yeah full, full plan is always sort of plan a we want to stabilize the casualty and situation we want to provide the medical rescue that i touched on stabilizing blood pressure correcting any medical issue that might have caused or have been caused by the accident that's basics and ambulance service and then the physical rescue from the from the fire service itself Glass management, removal of the doors, removal of the roof to allow for a, a safe and in-line extrication of the casualty. 
very quickly, the officer in charge will devise an emergency plan in his head and also an immediate rescue should we require it. The emergency plan is stepped up slightly from the full plan. It's in place at the very, very start. And this is to provide quick extrication for the deteriorating casualty in a life-threatening situation. And the last one, the immediate release, is if it's a traumatic cardiac arrest, there's no signs of life, it's a life-critical situation, or hazards like fuel leak, submergence of the vehicle in a river or a lake, or hazmats, chemical leakages, things like that. So that's really the three three sort of plans we come up with in our head so that at any point the ambulance service point out to us that the, you know things have changed we haven't got the time for the full plan we can step it up as required so yeah it, it's interesting because it, the sort of the default option seems to be to get everything as you know as neatly ordered and tidy and controlled as possible and it seems very much down to us as as basic responders or paramedics or doctors or nurses to to hit the accelerator if we're not happy from a medical point of view. Absolutely. And I think depending on, on, on where the RTC, et cetera, et cetera, is, as a basic responder, we're not always there on scene first. Sometimes we get requests from the guys on scene, or is, is there any basic help that can give us a hand or your task because there's more than one casualty and other vehicles are, are further away. On approaching the scene, for me as a basic responder, it doesn't matter if I'm first on scene or third or fourth. I always try and take a few, a few seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, to do my own dynamic risk assessment because it's such an intense scene. There's so much going on and very dynamic that things might have changed in the time that the ambulance service, the fire service arrived. And it's very important just to take 20 seconds as a responder to reassess the situation and just make sure nothing has changed in the time that all this work's been going on. So what sort of things are you looking for during that initial eyeballing of the scene? Any sort of hazard, really, that might harm you, the crews that are there, or create an impact on, on the scene itself. So, I mean, it could be as simple as a fuel leak, a spark might have arisen from the reciprocating saws and satellite to a bush or, you know, there's so much going on at scene. Sharp edges from A posts, B posts of the car once the, the roof's been removed or, or simple things like hydraulic cables working the fire brigade's machinery are causing trip hazards um, around the scene. We kind of teach the art of reading the wreckage, but particularly sort of for me on the A9 where you've got, you've got cars doing... 70, 80, 90 plus miles an hour. The, the concept of a car is sort of falls apart a little bit when, when what you're looking at is a, is a ball of broken things. Any sort of suggestions as to how to approach that? Yeah, you, you, need, to, you need to look at the vehicle as a vehicle. They've come on so much more in the last few years. Certainly in the time I've been in, they're a lot safer. You know, initial impact fatalities are coming down. When you're looking at a vehicle, it usually is intact, but it's been reproportioned. And don't be intimidated by the appearance of the car. They've got so much framework inside, so many airbags, which we need to sort of touch on at some point, that the safety is, is fantastic. So the cars now get dented and bashed and rolled 
but they're, they're so much more safer than they were when they were a Volvo 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I would look at each car as a piece as if it was intact, but just reproportioned, you know? I think it was a good, good kind of starting point. You touched on airbags there, and, and that's something that is always going through my mind, particularly because often to assess a patient, I'm in in front of them and, and working around them very much in range of, uh, of airbags. Yeah. That, what are the kind of suggestions in terms of working about, oh, about airbags? Stay away from them. They do explode with some violent force and within a fraction of a second. And just because one or two airbags have been deployed within the vehicle it doesn't mean the ones that haven't been deployed won't deploy even quite a while after impact. It used to be that if you disconnected the battery, the airbags would become defunct, but now they hold a residual charge and can still deploy. Airbags have been in all new vehicles since 1996, and typically they're in the steering wheel, the dashboard, and sometimes within the door, side impact curtains. However, the more expensive prestige models, the Porsche cars, can have up to 30 airbags throughout the internal compartment. Places for the airbags sort of react from a front impact side impact they can be above your head where the the door frame closes they can be in the footwells and they're even now within the car seats themselves so ideally we want to avoid putting our head between any portion of the car and the casualty itself so leaning over in front of the steering wheel looking at the casualty being able to talk to them might be handy but if that airbag deploys, unfortunately, your helmet is going to make a very big mess of the casualty himself. So there's four rules of safe distances for airbags. The, the lumber airbags deploy to about five inches. The driver's airbags tend to be a bit further at 10 inches. The curtain airbags that come down the side of the vehicle, either from the roof or from the A, B and C posts, are 15 inches. Um, and then the passenger and rear ones um, tend to be about 20. So it's 5, 10, 15 and 20 rules is, is quite useful to remember. The fire service carry now clamps that um, will clamp airbags, especially the, the steering wheel airbag. Unfortunately, they have been known to fail. So even if they are in place, caution is really required. That's airbags, really. Um, they're just everywhere. So mark and avoid. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, always bear in mind, as I say, that if they haven't deployed, they might. The other thing I want to quickly pick your brains on, obviously there's a lot more in the way of hybrid cars and electronic cars around now, even even in Highland Scotland, where we don't really have the infrastructure for them. Sure. Are there any specific concerns in terms of batteries and, and working around these electronic type cars? We do have concerns about them. They provide a lot of other hazards that we've not been used to with traditional diesel and, and, and petrol engines. At the moment, um, I haven't got that in my head, but I can look into that and provide more information on it if anyone was interested. There's a lot of facts and figures to them. Again, I think, like as I mentioned with the airbags, that they hold a residual charge. So they're also marked with various color cables, depending on the voltage of, of each vehicle is I'm afraid i haven't got that one in my back pocket today not at all and there's they, they certainly seem to be changing changing all the time absolutely absolutely when you've got the dual mix of traditional fuel and batteries you've got that higher risk of, of 
let's say, cross-contamination of a spark or something else causing ignition, that's higher than with just a normal, normal powered vehicle, you know? Fantastic. Um, we've talked a little bit about space creation and about getting an environment in which to work around wreckage. Yeah, for, from my point of view, that's that's hugely useful because it gives me the space to carry out the kind of the, the key medical interventions. Sure. Is there anything else that we can do to kind of help that communication piece with the fire service about creating space, about timelines? Yeah, I think, you know, we we need to identify that we mentioned the officer in charge earlier on out in the rural sticks, retained fire service works slightly different to whole time fire service in the fact that it's not always officer with a white hat that might be in charge of the vehicle of the appliance. It might be a firefighter that has done the test, but hasn't been, been made up in, in rank in order to keep the appliance on the, on the road. So always look out for the chat or the lady wearing the incident commander tabard and try and get a, a chat with them just to, to understand what they can do. Very often the fire service will offer to do a, a B-post rip and a dashboard roll. If you're not, if you're not familiar with, with the terms, I find it a lot easier to go just to ask them, how long will that be? How long have I got? How long will it take? Because five minutes is a lot easier to understand sometimes than, you know, a, a full roof removal with a, a fold down door, you know? Absolutely. I yeah, certainly ended up just staring blankly back at somebody whilst they, they use jargon that's well outside my uh, my remit. Absolutely. But equally, I guess it works the other way. And if we're talking about needing to put thoracosynthesis, then I'd imagine most fire officers are, are going to look pretty blankly back at us at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about communication between ourselves and, and the fire service. And not only those two, but the police as well. You know, you say I work in the A9. They're desperate to keep it open especially on stretches that haven't got easy rerouting of, of traffic to keep it flowing. Quite often, you, you can feel a bit under pressure to work quicker and, or keep the road open. So again, your safety, passenger casualty safety is paramount. And don't be pressurized by the police into keeping the road open. If you don't feel safe, ask them to shut it and you know, really put the pressure the other way if they try to persuade you to keep it open. Brilliant. Um, one of the things we've been getting all of our presenters to do is to give us uh, three top tips, I guess, with yourself in terms of working alongside the fire service and working at RTCs. What, what would your suggestions be? Okay, so the first one we, we just touched on as well. Um, if a firefighter or a member of the rescue team offers to do a, a removal of an item from the the car or space creation and uses jargon that you don't understand. Ask for a time scale for the job. You know, it's a lot easier to, to understand three minutes, five minutes than uh, B post rip and a dashboard roll. And that'll give you time to look at the patient, reassess them. Have I got time? Have I got five minutes before I need to do this intervention? Or do we need to upscale the extrication? Secondly, there's usually more than one appliance um, at the scenes of RTCs. Fire engines carry a minimum of four crew and can be up to six. So the balance of manpower is usually in their favor. So try and get one of them to, to provide inline stabilization and continually talk to the casualty because they're great at knowing what's going on, 
reassuring the patient prior to loud noises, metal being cut, glass breaking, and that sort of thing. And then finally, early on in the job, try to take a minute to discuss the plans for the deteriorating patient. If everyone knows the game plan they're all working to, we'll all achieve the same goal. Um, and it's e easier to, to upscale the incident if everyone knows how we're going to achieve it. So that's really the three I would take away. Fantastic. No, that's brilliant. It's a really useful insight, I guess, from, from the other side of the multi-agency team to see how we can work together better at these, these pretty complex jobs. They can be, and you know, it's, again, it's all down to communication and working together. Uh, we're all working for the, the best outcome for the patient, for the casualty, to come to a, a happy conclusion. Indeed. Thanks so much for sharing your insight and experience with us. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.